Markwick here again. Have you missed me? I'm sorry, it's been a bit of a while since the last episode. Uh, that's mainly due to pressures from work. Trying to keep the old cinema afloat, you know. And starting to make plans for reopening. Whenever that may be. But welcome uh, to the Lockdown Time Machine, and we've got a really bumper episode for you today. Uh, with the force of nature that is Robin Ince. Uh, Robin is a comedian, writer, actor. Um, you probably know him from the Radio 4 show, Infinite Monkey Cage with Professor Brian Cox. Uh, Robin has a vast array of projects on the go, all worth your time. Uh, not least the Book Shambles podcast with Josie Long. Uh, he puts together science and comedy shows and every year he, try, he tries and fails to make his Christmas show Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People Run to Time. I first met Robin when he came and did some stand-up at the cinema uh, when we used to do the Laughter Lounge, which may come back, you never know. Uh, and then he's been back a few times. Uh, he came down and presented a double feature of horror, X the Man with X-Ray Eyes and Mask of the Red Death, which was a fun evening. Talking uh, with Robin is always a delight. And in theory, in theory, we were talking about, well, we did talk about the Leather Boys in 1964. And when we finally got round to uh, playing Dracula, Prince of Darkness in 1966, although it had been released in 1965. But of course, um, we did veer all over the place, covered 2001 and all sorts of subjects. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. I know I certainly did. Imagine the entertainment world after all the entertainment venues are closed. What's it going to be? Are we going to go back to like traveling troops of. Uh, yeah, you're going to have one of those vans that they used yeah. to take around rural <laughs> Ireland, you know, that kind of thing. 
rumbling, tumbling, you know, sort of Fellini-esque, you know, kind of uh, mad touring troops. We've gone back to year zero in the entertainment business. Yeah, Ke- Kevin, new things had yeah. changed. When the first time there was a train on screen, people ran away screaming. Yes. <laughs> it is. I don't know. Maybe it's going to be homemade stuff or every, I mean you, I mean whilst this is great fun to do all this stuff up to a point it can't go on in a little zoom window can it for the next no you won't there isn't a big enough audience for it, it, no. it as well it will all thin out people are still yeah. kind of joining in and you know the the Albert Hall thing we had about 25,000 households watching on the night yeah and uh and then obviously that's gone up on online since then and, and that was you know way more than we thought for a no budget kind of thing mm. um so you can you can get but that's going to thin out that's that's not going to remain no but then the the impression is that the world and his wife are doing a podcast i suppose yeah. the world and his wife aren't doing successful podcasts that's the thing yeah there's always you know. been too many podcasts nothing's changed there so what i've done is i've collated all the films that we've shown over this period in the last uh well since my father took the cinema in 1964 when I was the grand old age of a year and a half. And it's basically every film that we've shown over this period since then and asked people to sort of pick out a couple of weeks or a week that tickles their fancy a bit. And um, you picked out... Ooh, what was the date you picked out? <laughs> I, I know Dracula, Prince of Darkness was in it. It must oh, be 1965. One, it? Leather Boys was in it. Leather Boys, yeah. It's definitely... I think it's June... About the first week of June 1965. Yeah, so we've got... Um, the 8th of June, 1964, which is the first one. That's the Leather Boys. And then we'll we'll have a quick squiz at uh, the June the 5th, 1966, actually, at play. Oh, God, that's quite late. So that, that was a second run for Dracula, Prince of Darkness, well, then, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, well, what it would have been is because he wouldn't have played a Dracula film for a week. No way. Not right. Certainly not then, because in those days we were what we called three-day change. So you had a film Sunday, Monday, Tuesday... Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, Saturday, or, or any combination of those. So you had three different programs in a week because we were one screen and films took a long time to get out there. You know, it wasn't like uh, it is now where everything's like this major mm. release that all goes out at once. It took, 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 because they only used to make about 40 or 50 prints to cover the whole country. And so you had North London release, South London release, Southern release, Midlands release, Scotland release, you know. Um, but also he wouldn't have played. Because actually, that I mean, if we start, we can start there. That's fine. Um, that in 1966, um, that was a classic double bill, actually, wasn't it? A hammer double bill: mm. Dracula, Prince of Darkness, and Plague of the Zombies. In fact, I believe they even designed it that way. Now, um, I thought in my mind, but this is only because they're connected in terms of kind of narrative connections. Mm. I always think of Plague of Zombies and the Reptile because they're the kind of the, the Cornish double act there. Sure, but they um, were the second ones that were so. So it was designed to be Dracula. Plague of Zombies and Rasputin the Mad Monk and the Reptile. They were the two double features. And what they did, and there was a rationale behind it actually, was that because they were using the same sets for Dracula, Prince of Darkness and the uh, uh, Rasputin one, they didn't want them in the same program because you'd mm. be going, ah, look, you see, you know, that last film. Where... <laughs> but it's it's a story worth looking for, actually looking up, because they it was a deliberate thing to make four films back to back. In this extraordinary, I think that each one had, um, I think they had about two months to shoot each one. And they literally spent, yeah, eight months shooting these four films. And then they went out. So Dracula, Prince of Darkness, Plague of Zombies, which was the um, 
the, the, the double bill that they wanted to, to put out uh, would have played in upfield in 1966 because um, he wouldn't have played it for seven days. And when it was released, mm. they'd have wanted a whole week for it. Well, Frank and Drac or any of those combinations of Hammer films weren't worth a whole week in upfield. That's, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because we think of them, you know, how when the, when they got whatever year it was, a couple of years later, I think they got the uh, the the British uh, the Queen's Award for Industry, didn't they? Sometimes yeah. I think possibly mm-hmm. nineteen sixty seven. Michael Carreras got that, but it is. I mean, I always find it. I find going back to Hammer films very interesting because I was such a huge fan, having never seen any. Mm. Because as I've I've mentioned many times before, you know, Alan Frank's Book of Horror Movies, which was a sure. huge influence on League of Gentlemen as well. And I've got a couple of copies, one just behind me now. And then yeah. the House of Hammer, uh, later Hammer House of Horror, later Hammer Halls of Horror magazine that ran over 23 issues where you would get, in fact, one of the best comic strip adaptations in terms of artwork is the Dracula Prince of Darkness one, which is very, yeah. very beautifully done. Um, and so you would see these versions of Hammer films which did not have the restrictions of budget because, of course, pen and ink can create fabulous yes. things well. that are way <laughs> beyond the possibility. I'm trying this to think. I've, I've got a stack of them right behind where where we just... Uh, I'll see if I've got... Got Frankenstein monster. There's a. Uh, you can see this. Obviously, they can't. But there we yeah, go. That's yeah. a beautiful, oh, wow. beautiful cupboard there with uh, various different uh, Frankenstein monsters, including in the corner Peter Boyle as young Frankenstein. And on the back, they would always have one of the uh, uh, a version of the posters. That for the Gorgon there uh, one. And I'm trying to see if I've got in this stack. I don't. Sadly, I don't think I have. The the. Ah, oh, yes, I do. Here we yeah. are. Uh-huh. Dracula Prince great. of Darkness issue 6 35 pence free 500 film preview tickets for Squirm oh, now have you dear. ever seen Squirm yeah it's not very good Squirm is one of those films that I waited I was middle aged by having first seen for those who don't know Squirm it's about it's one of those 1970s animals go mad films this is about a certain breed of earthworm in the south of the United States of America which due to a, a, a pylon electrocuting the soil uh, turns them into flesh hungry worms there is an incredible promotional image of a man sinking into a lake of worms and so you of course as i'm sure you you've done you build the film around the promotional image and you've already made it in your head and then sometime in your mid 40s you finally (laughs) see it and go that that was it that's the only moment the rest of it is a very boring angry cannibalizing earthworm movie that that was part of a whole slew of really not very good films that American International made. Samuel Z. Orkoff presents uh, Food of the Gods was another one. Ooh, with a giant oh, chicken. Oh, now, now Food of the Gods, which I would have shown, because, <laughs> of course, around this time, uh, I was going to be bringing the Satanic Rites of Robin Inch show to, yes. uh, to, yeah. to the, you know, the, the lovely pitch mm. house. And it was, uh, I do have one of the clips I sometimes show is uh, from Food of the Gods 2, Ooh. where there is a giant five-year-old uh, <laughs> and there's a little scene where I can't remember verbatim so, so you can see how it's been done very careful use of angles to make him appear to be giant in the corner of the room and yes. uh, J- Jimmy these people have come to see you they want to help <laughs> yeah and I want them to fuck off uh, it's a really great moment yeah, um, it was no there were a lot of them they were put out by a very strange um, distribution company in the UK called Brent Walker which was a, oh yeah, a who made the bitch and the stud and, and all that he, stuff? He, he, he was a, a boxer originally. He was, he? Yeah. yeah. And then he suddenly decided that he didn't need his money, so he was going to uh, <laughs> put it all into film uh, releasing and production. But yeah, so the 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 um, comic book version, if that's the right word, of Dracula, Prince of Darkness, must have been 
probably better than the film then, was it? Because the film's yeah. a little bit um, it's not beautifully one of the best. Done. It was it was the yeah. artist John Bolton who did a lot of great work and also did work for things like Monster Club as well. Some of the the the, the comic strip adaptation of, of that. It's a, it's a bit. I would my general problem with as someone who loves Hammer films, I'm often surprised by how few of them I actually like, really like. Yes. I, I, I have a, a an intense love of the Amicus Portmanteau films. I, I think uh, Asylum, oh, yeah. Tales from the Crypt, uh, all of those from Beyond the Grave have really beautiful, startling, uncanny scenes in them. And, a, and a, mm-hmm. you know, Angela Pleasance and Ian Bannon in From Beyond the Grave, that particular story. The, the best Dracula film of Hammer, I think, is the one which Dracula's not in. Which That's is uh, Brides of Dracula. One. Yeah, the second one, wasn't it? It was the follow-up. Which just, you know, Lee didn't want to do any more. You know, he already was, I think, looking to his career and thinking, hang on a minute, I don't know, I don't know if I want to do another Dracula film. As far as I remember, he, he didn't want to do it. So they made it instead with an actor called David Peel, who went on, I believe, to become a uh, own an antique store somewhere in Canada. But, but I might oh, be really? wrong about that. <laughs> um, and that is a really interesting it has a, a beautiful spoiler alert if you haven't yet seen it in the previous 60 years it's been available but uh <laughs> the the crucifix that destroys count oh man i'm going to forget his name i'll, I'll remember before the end of it the, the, the okay. name of that particular count i'll, I'll leave but that the, with you the crucifix is created by a windmill so there's a wonderful oh, scene where right. peter yes. cushing leaps onto oh, the sails of a yes. windmill creates the crucifix and thus destroys yeah. uh, he's not karnstein karnstein of course came much later with a uh, a slew of um of uh, sexy lesbian vampires oh yeah well they were great um <laughs> they made a huge impression on me as a 14 year old boy i have to say because i had the uh, unusual advantage of actually being able to go to the cinema and sneak into the cinema and see these things because you know we owned a cinema so I could uh, sneak in and watch yeah lesbian vampire killers and uh, it went out in a double feature with a motorcycle one what was that was it called? psychomania no 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 it was oh a hammer a hammer motorcycle, a hammer yeah. motorcycle one. yeah angels from hell was it I think oh, it was. I there, there yeah. was I mean satanic rights uh, uh, Dracula has uh, motorcycles in it uh, I can't immediately think of a motorcycle hammer. Yeah, I think it was Angels from Hell. I'm pretty sure that's what it was called. And I can see the... I don't know who the artist was that did those fantastic quad poster paintings for them back in the 70s. You know, he did those great ones for Twins of Evil, didn't he? And, um, yeah. You know, really superb uh, poster art that they had. Uh, and, yeah, I can see the double feature quad now. Lesbian Vampire Killers on the left, and I'm pretty sure it was... So it was Lust, lust for a right. Vampire, you reckon? Yeah, Lust for a Vampire. Uh, Lust for a Vampire. It was the second one, because the first one, I think, was Countess Dracula, wasn't it? Was that? Uh, let me think. So there's... Uh, yeah. No, hang on a minute. There's uh, Lust for a Vampire, which is the second one. That was quite saucy. Uh, Countess Dracula <laughs> doesn't technically count, as far as oh, I remember. That, that's oh, the right. Thorin okay. legend. It okay. ends on Twins of Evil, and it starts with the Vampire Lovers. Vampire Lovers, that's yeah. it. Yes. But there was nudie ladies in it, which, of course, for the 14-year-old boy in me. Wait a minute. Let me rephrase that. Um... Uh, I'm pretty sure, yeah. I mean, what, what were we saying? It was called Lesbian Vampire Killers, yeah. Vampire, and, uh, vampire Lovers, and uh, I'm just trying to find the double bill. No, not Lesbian now. Vampire Killers. That's an uh, abomination. It should yeah. never be made. Oh, now that was the, it, it, it did do a double bill with uh, uh, Countess Dracula at one point, but I would imagine that was just. Uh, I'll see if I can find that quote. But yeah, they yeah. were. They are. I mean, th- that's one of the things about horror movies. I, I, I often think of horror movies in a similar. Angels from Hell. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Which I yeah. don't think is a Hammer movie. 
You don't think it is? No. No, I, I oh, would. Okay. I would be. I, I'm. I'm prepared to uh, place money mm. on Angels from Hell being possibly something from one of the American studios that they work with. Oh, there you go. There's an image on Google of the quad poster. So that's interesting. I can't see from the image, but it is Vampire Lovers on the left and Angels from Hell on the right. The program to make your blood run hot. <laughs> yeah, this An- Angels from Hell looks like a, a uh, very... Uh, the film music was from a Peanut Butter Conspiracy in the Lollipop oh, right. Shop. Uh, directed by Bruce Kessler. He is oh. not a hammer. That's not a hammer director's okay, name. Okay, so it's not uh, a hammer. It's not a but hammer. But yeah, that's then. interesting, isn't it? Because mm. certainly in the 60s, I would say they were generally... that the Hammer was with Hammer. Yes. Well, like, like this... So, so the classic Dracula, Prince of Darkness, Plague of the Zombies which I found last night on a, um, I think it was on Daily Motion. You can watch the whole thing. And I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it since it was on BBC Two back in like 1980. We all miss the late night horror double bell on BBC Two. Well, I wish Talking Pictures could, I I realise they may not have access to enough Mm. films, but I think it would be an absolute delight if Talking Pictures TV started putting on black and white followed by a colour horror because they, they had a couple of good weird horrors a wonderful strange one with Patrick McGee as a priest <laughs> and uh, yeah, the, and, the, and they definitely have some interesting strange things because that that was of course for so many of us this, this was yeah. the introduction to for me the first one I ever saw was Night of the Demon followed by the 1975 version of The Ghoul which was which, also on the front of the Radio Times I know, think that, that was the that very first one they did I think I seem to remember or if it wasn't the first one they did it was the opening of the season it was the opening of the season. I think season. it's gone for a couple of years before then. But it's, yeah. yeah, you're right. Dracula, Prince of Darkness, which of course famously Christopher Lee said, I saw the script and I said, oh, <laughs> I think it's better I don't say anything at all. And uh, so, so yes. yeah, the, this whole story about why Dracula says nothing. Um, but they are interesting because they're not. I, I watched Dracula or Horror of Dracula, the first Hammer uh, one, is not, uh, is, is actually a, a pretty boring film. It has some great moments, and Peter Cushing, I I, I adore. Uh, it has a great end scene, the the the, the final sequence of, of Peter Cushing mm. leaping across to drag these heavy curtains down to obviously immediately reveal the set of Curse of Frankenstein, but drag <laughs> these heavy curtains down to, to you know the sun pours in and you see that Lee's face as he watches his hand disintegrate in the beams oh, of light. Tremendous. That is a tremendous moment. But but the film itself, I have to admit, I went back to and I thought, I mean, oddly enough. The 50s Hammer and the 70s Hammer, I think, is is remembered because the 70s Hammer entered that strange exploitation phase, as we've said already, the lesbian vampire mm. films, uh, Satanic Rights Dracula, Dracula AD 72, Dracula, you know, kind of swinging London. Um, and then the 50s, you have the Hound of the Baskervilles, the Mummy, and you have... But the 60s is, I think, their most interesting period. I think Kiss of a Vampire with, with Edward D'Souza, amongst others, is has got a lot of interesting things in it. As I mentioned, I, I think Phantom of the Opera with Herbert Lom is a very... I haven't uh, seen Some that. people say it's quite boring. I think it's a very underrated uh, Hammer movie. I also love Herbert Lom anyway because... Of all the Phantom of the Operas, I think that is the one that plays it closest to the love story of, uh, which is not necessarily the, the closest to, to, to the book, but but the closest to just the idea of a love story of a man mm. who has been treated very unfairly. And mm. Lom, I think, is terrific in it. Because actually they show the end of Dracula in Dracula, Prince of Darkness, don't they? they yeah, yeah. They, they, that they, saves they, time. They, as a kid, the um, uh, Brides of Dracula, the bit that had a huge impact on me and frightened the hell out of me was the bit in the barn where Cushing has to burn the 
dra- the, the the vampire bite out of his neck. That was yeah, horrifying. Yeah, yeah, it's a great scene. Yeah, it really was. Cushing to me is in a different league to Christopher Lee. Uh, yeah. I think Christopher Lee's great, and I, I'm not saying anything, but. There is something about Peter Cushing, something about the conviction in every single part he plays. At no point do you see a flickering in his eyes that this is all rather below me. You <laughs> never see that. You know, when, whether he's in Biggles, whether he's in the BBC 1984, whatever it is. I, I, I think the older I've got, the more that I love yes. Peter Cushing. But yeah, there was a certain amount of ego about Christopher Lee. I love it because... Jimmy Sangster, isn't it, who wrote the screenplay for a lot of these things, um, he maintained that the reason uh, Dracula doesn't say anything in this film is because he didn't write him any lines. <laughs> Lee insisted, on the other hand, that, uh, that no, it was beneath him. But, you know, he kept making them, didn't he? I mean, let's be fair. He just, he, he really made a lot of films. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think at Lee. one point it was, because I think John Carradine used to be the uh, actor with the most <laughs> right. on-screen credits, and it was it was over four hundred, and you know even by about nineteen seventy-seven, I'm sure Christopher Lee does some like one hundred eighty-eight films, and some of them are. The, there's one that does crop up every now and then. I think I always get this: the Circus of Fear and the Circus of Horrors. One is not a bad piece of work with Anton Differing, the other that is not a good of piece horrors. of work, yeah. um, which has uh, Christopher Lee in a main part as a hooded knife thrower. But of course, what it basically means is, much like Ed Wood's Plan Nine from Outer Space, yes. uh, it's not Christopher Lee for most of the time. In the same way that it's not Bela Lugosi, it's a man holding a. Yeah. Um, and so, you, Christopher Lee must have been in it for a couple of hours in terms of actual filming time. There's, I mean, that's a beautiful thing to watch when you watch something like Scream and Scream Again, uh, where just the number of horror actors that pop up will have mm. been required for half a day, mm-hmm. uh, maybe less pop on the uniform, get the lights right, do the three lines, get strangled, die. So what I was thinking about while I was watching Plague of the Zombies last night, uh, and I I went back to Dracula, Prince of Darkness uh, over the weekend as well, was these films wouldn't get made today, not because there's no appetite for horror, but because barely anyone under the age of 45 or 50 is in it, which is quite extraordinary, isn't it? But the centre of the whole Plague of the Zombies movie is uh, around... Um, oh, I've forgotten his name now. You know, he must be 55 if he's a day, I should think. But and be careful, because there is a strange thing. Again, yeah. you see, when, which you must have noticed. You mm. watch a film in which everyone's middle-aged in the 1950s or 60s, and then you look yes. up their age and you go, right. they were 23. <laughs> 23 years old. Well, maybe. But, you know, I think... But they are playing old fuddy-duddies, aren't they? Yeah. Mostly. You know, the, the guy in Play Good as well. What's his name? Oh, God. Andre Morel. Andre Morel. There you yeah. go. That's it. That's it. So, I mean, he couldn't have been any spring chicken. And Dracula, Prince of Darkness, the f- what? Who's the lead in that, really? It's the uh, the young husband, isn't it? But he's not. He's not. I mean, they're not young people. I mean, what I mean is... If I'm trying to think. Richard Pascoe's in it, isn't he? Is Richard in, Pascoe in, in Prince of Darkness? Uh, I, do you know? They're all very familiar names, aren't they? Uh, very familiar faces. This is the thing about British cinema in the 50s and 60s. Everyone was a familiar face. Yeah. If they weren't um, Richard Wattis, they were... Uh, <laughs> well, the lovely <laughs> thing, of course, is many people are enormous fans of Michael Ripper. And Michael Ripper was one of Hammer's most regular actors. As, ah, uh, yes, he's Very great. often as the innkeeper or innkeeper, similar. Uh, yeah. He was in the TV sitcom Butterflies as, as, as the, the, the chauffeur of Wendy Craig's love interest. And, uh, and he is one of those delights... 
yes. to just go here he is again here it's he is. michael ripper is just perpetually in work never out of work he was the uh policeman in plague of the zombies that's right it's, yeah it's, yeah or don't all sir or you don't know about all that all that goings on. <laughs> See, I think that's a, that. that I, 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 I think Plague of Zombies is a pretty good film. It I, is, I think, I, I, and I think you know Jacqueline Pierce, of course, was she? She's the young person in it who, mm. who went on to become, uh, I suppose, for again for our generation, particularly well known for playing Serverland in Blake Seven. But you know, she was in yes. Reptile, she was in Plague of Zombies. These kind of two tin mine based horrors, Cornish horrors, yeah. um, and I, and I think film. they have a lot more atmosphere i think a lot of those one-offs as opposed to the series stuff because a lot of the series you just go oh my god it's the same plot again and again Mm -hmm. and again occasionally with dennis waterman which isn't necessarily a good thing so um yeah dracula prince of darkness was uh who was so who was the lead it was uh francis matthews he was the lead oh yeah who was always a delightful light leading man an enormous number of things yeah but anyway so we did uh, June the 5th, 1966, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, Plague of the Zombies. On the Sunday, we had 141 admissions, and it took £24.15. Shillings. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> You'd I like to see that, that kind out. of money nowadays, Yeah, you? I would. Can you work that out? I can't work that out. Well, that means it was like shilling each. No, I don't know. Tansy and I, my wife, were talking about this earlier. How did you even add up pounds, shillings and pence? What a nightmare. <laughs> and then on Monday, there were 42 admissions and it took £7.16. and shillings. 183 people over two days. That's not too bad. And what was the other double bill over that uh, that time? Uh, we did... Oh, that. Well, so that week, we showed films everyone's forgotten. Silk and Skin and Phantom Lovers. Nobody knows what that is. See, that's uh-huh. something that I find fascinating. I, I'm a, a great fan of the uh, F. Morris Speed Film Review annuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you flick through those and you go, wow, just nope. films that are entirely not... Forgotten. F- you, you, you look on some of the weirdest streaming services. You you know, you know, Some of them do sometimes pop up on YouTube because no one owns them anymore and maybe someone's shown an interest. But it's really intriguing to see the number of films which have just vanished. And uh, yeah. you know, I was thinking the other day about a film which, when it came out, it felt like one of the biggest films ever, which was The Stuntman, starring Steve Railsback and, and Peter, uh, Peter O'Toole. Peter O'Toole, yeah. He got um, nominated, didn't he, for Oscars for that one? Yeah. But if you mention that, that is not a film that has been carried over with time. It's not a bad film. It's got some no. great sequences in it. It's quite yep. funny and strange, and Peter O'Toole is good in it. I think, because even, even the studios, though, if you pick up a copy of, say, the MGM story or the Warner Brothers story, and they list, they have a little thumbnail of every film produced that year, 80% of those films you and I have never heard of, you know, yeah. and, and we know a lot about films, and I've never heard them, heard of these films. I'm trying to think, what was that one called, Phantom Lovers? Because I've, I've got my uh, psychotronic video guide here, oh, so wow. um, I'll yeah. just quickly have a look and see if that Phantom makes it. You know, I, I would imagine there's been more than one uh, Phantom of Crestwood, Phantom of Death, Phantom... No, Phantom Lovers doesn't make it in. Yeah. May well have had a different title, of course. What was the other one? Satin... Silken Skin, that was the feature. Silken I mean, Skin, this so this feature. was... Uh, had 86 people come in on Tuesday night for it, so it must Which have had... gives us a good idea of they yeah. were not coming in because it had great reviews <laughs> from the Times that week, were they? If you look through this book at this period... Um, yeah, there's a good one. Face of Fu Manchu. 
Oh yeah, which are all terrible. Those films. They, they really uh, are. That, that now there is a um, the producer of that Harry Allen Towers, who who also produced uh, the Jess Franco version of Dracula, Count Dracula, with Christopher Lee. Uh, Harry Allen Towers, I think, was mm. someone who really mm. scrimped and saved. He wasn't. I, I, I think he had he. Not, unlike Corman, who I think really you do get a sense loves cinema and loves making things. Yeah, Harry Allen Towers, I think, was was a very much we can screw a bit more money out of this. But I don't know what my dad was thinking because the second feature with Face of Fu Manchu was Our Man in Marrakesh. Uh, there's so much stuff in these books; it's fascinating. My dad and I used to do this in an afternoon. We go, oh, oh, I just that. love uh, that. <laughs> it's like sitting with a reference book, isn't it? You just sit yeah. and you go, just just reading a reference book. I, today. I miss that. I'm, you know, he died 25 years ago now, but I do 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 miss that. We we we'd hoot with laughter at some of the crap we used to play. Here's the thing. So there you go. You you hit the nail on the head. Our man in Marrakesh is also a Harry Allen Towers. Harry Allen Towers, right? Uh, with Center Burger, Herbert Lom, Klaus Kinski, Terry Thomas. Oh, that sounds interesting. What is this film? Moroccan gangsters involve an American tourist, Tony Randall. Lovely. In a complex espionage scheme. I think that sounds quite good fun. Oh, I know. Actually, what I wanted to ask you, because Matthew said last week that there was always this rumour that there were stronger versions of Hammer films out there than we ever got to see. Is that something you've heard of? I've, as far as I know, Hammer... There's not really. I might be wrong about this. I'm not, a, you know, a great historian in any way on that. But of course, there are many other like Curse of Crimson Altar, Witchfinder General, uh, Flesh Flesh and the Fiends, which is not a Hammer movie. It's a fantastic film though, mm. um, which is uh, has um, uh, it, it's a body snatcher story uh, set in Edinburgh. Um, with uh, Donald Pleasance, amongst others, and Peter Cushing. And I recently saw that because I think it's being re-released. That's about 1960. And that definitely had the version we saw was the stronger European version in which occasionally a man has to go into a club in which women sit extremely still but naked. (laughs) But extremely still, you know, very much like the women. So I, you know, I'd love to talk to Matthew about that really because I've never seen any uh no i think i think they're like a myth they must have been working the whole time these people like cushing and lee they must have just gone from one film to another yeah surely because i mean to us you look back at this long list of titles and you think well they must have yeah literally just gone from one to another because lee made a lot of amicus ones didn't he like uh i monster was one of theirs wasn't it and um yeah by uh, stephen weeks which is which is yeah Stephen Weeks who also made uh, the film Ghost Story, which has uh, Withnell in it, Mackerel, Vivian Mackerel, who is actually Withnell, the real Withnell. It's funny, isn't it? So th- those films that last and those that don't, those films that you wait for so long to see, because I think I'm monster. <laughs> I think there's a big colour still. Weird thing about Alan Frank's horror movies book is they wasted the few pages of colour on the most boring images Crappy so it's just pictures. a picture of christopher lee <laughs> holding a syringe up it's not like the creeping flesh all yeah. scary you know there's a good bit obviously for the frozen dead which i believe your dad also had on at a double bill yes. i yeah. didn't pick that day but i would happily no. have done that yeah. as well because i've still not seen the frozen dead uh which is uh, a nazi uh, cryogenic freezing nazi based movie um but yeah there's it's so funny that you just go why have you picked these really really boring images or boring images from black killer or things like that yeah i had that one and i had the gifford one as well the uh, big yeah pictorial history of the horror. I've got that. That's back there yeah. as well. Yeah. And um, what fascinated me, there's a color plate in there of uh, a, um, I think it's Lon Chaney in the Mary Celeste. 
or the mystery of the Be- Bella Lugosi. Uh, Bella Lugosi. The, the, it, it's, it's the it's yeah. a kind of yeah the, Green, the promo poster for yeah. that. Yeah. Well, if you look in the sort of bottom left hand corner, there's a little stamp that says Picture Drome Eastbourne on it, which oh. is where which is where my dad started as a rewind boy in 1948. Was the picture drawing in Eastbourne? So that always fascinated me when I was a kid. That that was in actually in this book. They must have I don't know got it from somewhere. But um, yeah, I I'm think just... that also links to Hammer because I think yes, I think that, that was the first Hammer, yeah. film by what would eventually become Hammer Studios. Mm, I can't remember mm. they were called Exclusive Pictures or something similar to that. Right. But I, I I think that's 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 the first one. Okay. So um, shall we rewind back then to 1964? By the way, from what I can yeah. see, The Phantom Lovers might have been a Marcello Mastroianni film from 1961, oh. released in the UK in 1964. Ah, That's all I've found out so far. Right. That's extraordinary, isn't it? That these, I mean, forgotten films. Because actually, um, you know, Talking Pictures is very good at that, isn't it? It's coming up with stuff. And you go, oh, my goodness. I'd even forgotten that was a thing. I love them very much, but I wish they'd broadcast in high definition. I know I shouldn't say it, but. I find it quite frustrating sometimes. <laughs> um, so the other week you picked out was 1964. <laughs> June, the 8th of June, 1964, we had a double feature of The Leather Boys and Murder by Contract. That did Which, really well. Oh, I thought, oh, Murder by Contract. Did I pick that? Where no, was, no, was the Murder following, at the Gallop on that week no, as well? Murder at the Gallop was the following week, I think. Ah, oh, damn. Uh, do you like that? Right. No, no, it was the same week. Oh, it was the same week. Good, good. So, um, what happened there? So, just very quickly give it a bit of background. Um, we couldn't open on Sundays on those days. We weren't allowed at that time. We weren't allowed. We had to get a special separate license to open on Sundays. And my father wrote to the uh, authorities to get the permission, and we had to we had to justify ourselves to the Bishop of Lewis, which uh, it's a bit weird. And um, uh, they said that there was no no um, evidence to show that there was any call for cinemas opening on a Sunday, which was hilarious. And we opened on <sighs> it was not that long afterwards, actually. And it was the first ever Sunday, and it was the fourth of October that year, nineteen sixty-four. And the double feature was Circus of Horrors and Conga. There you go. Oh, which also I think has Michael Goff in it. In fact, it yeah, does have Michael Goff yeah. in it, Conga. And that was, in fact, they've uh, all got Michael Goff in it they somewhere. All, there's they have there's somewhere. homeopathic Michael Goff <laughs> spread throughout all British movies. But uh, 4th of October, 1964, so is the Horace of and, it, and this was the first ever Sunday, given that they thought Sundays was going to be a waste of time. We had 323 admissions in. So wow. they must have gone, <gasps> something to do on a Sunday at last. And it took £36 and four shillings. But, um, and I think Circus of Horrors yeah. was the one with Anton Differing, yes, as far it was, as I remember. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, I always get it mixed up with um, Vampire Circus for some reason. I don't know why. That's, That's another one film. which, if you yeah. saw the comic strip adaptation of Vampire Circus... Mm. I mean, actually, you know what? That, I think, is perhaps where some of those rumours about the different, the sexier versions of Hammer films is... For instance, the American print of Vampire Circus mm. does have some of the uh, kind of toplessness, I think, cut out and stuff. There the were prints that worked, but it's more the other way round. Right. It's okay. more that some prints, yep. I think, I think I'm right in saying in, in the US, were slightly kind of bowdlerized. Mm. I mean, there's okay. that bizarre thing when you think of bowdlerized films where uh, Michael Winner's entirely unrequired i'm not going to say career entirely unrequired because <laughs> i enjoyed the restaurant reviews entirely uh-huh. unrequired remake of the wicked lady with faye dunaway 
Yes. Which is a remarkable anti-achievement and has a, a soundtrack by uh, Genesis's Tony Banks. There's a scene where the Wicked Lady has a whip fight with someone, which was yes. a topless whip fight. It was. But also an entirely separate version is shot in which uh, it is not a topless whip fight. And that, that's a typical example of that kind of... Uh, and then for when we sell this to certain territories or to make sure this can go on television. That took money, you know. It took money, Wicked Lady. It really did. Had a it big was, release. I've still yeah. got the soundtrack somewhere that I bought right. from Watford Market. But, you know, actually, in terms of, um, you know, effectiveness, the Gainsborough original still works much better. But they were, you know, slightly iffy, even in their day, the Gainsborough ones, weren't they, with uh, James Mason and uh, um, uh, Googie Withers and all these people. Ma- Margaret Lockwood, yeah. Margaret Lockwood, yeah. And they were, you know, they weren't... They, they, there was a... Very strong whiff of misogyny in all those films, wasn't it? Oh it was yeah, about, I think you know, you, you know, the man. Do, I mean, that, that, again, going back to talking pictures, that's that yeah. thing where they often have before a film. This film was made in 1963, where many attitudes were different at the time. For historical reasons, we haven't edited it, but every now and again, language. So yeah, 1964, 8th of June, The Leather Boys. Why Which did you for pick the a Leather lot Boys? of people yeah. who would, who. Of 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 uh, similar to me here in the in their early fifties or late forties, their first experience of the Leather Boys would mm. be uh, it's used in the Girlfriend in a Coma video. So uh, with Morris's face occasionally uh, superimposed over it, there are various scenes involving Rita Tushingham, and I think it's Colin Campbell. As far as I remember, I hope it's Colin Campbell. Uh, uh, yeah, sounds right. I can't remember whether Dudley Sutton manages to to pop into shot dud, or not. Dud, dud. Oh, what in the in the actual video? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In in mm. in in the video, but it's just. One of the reasons I chose that is I find that period of time very interesting. First of all, these early, they still are the teenage movie. This is what young people are like. We're dealing with young people. Young people aren't there. This isn't the war anymore. We haven't fought a war, daddy-o. You know, it has that kind of attitude to it. It also has an attitude about sexuality, which, again, like films like Victim, were so way ahead of their time. Mm. And it's always, to me, a fascinating thing in terms of the fact that Dirk Bogard, Bogard, who kept his you know cards close to his chest, but he was in a pioneering film uh, about the treatment of people who were gay, which is considered to have changed attitudes and led to the Wolfenden Report, possibly, and all yes. the things that, that that led to as well. So I'm always interested in, in those sometimes quite cheap films, sometimes not the big-budget movies, which are sometimes, I think, a, 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 an even better spotlight on the times, on the culture, than the high art, because the high art might cover the eternal problems of being human sometimes the slightly lower art well the interesting thing about it is there's 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 many layers in this film it seems because i i watched it last week and um i'd never seen it so i was i was watching it for the first time and um what struck me the one of the easiest things to enjoy about it is the sort of social history part of it Mm. you know the streets of london and the ace uh, cafe that they go to which is apparently a famous biker cafe at the time i I, you know it's still i mean now it's you know now you get the t-shirt and you go there but if you you ever on Mm. on the train that i used to get into to london i may well do again one day um it always we just go (laughs) past just out of wembley you just see there the ace cafe and there's always still a lot of bikes parked out there. right and that was all fascinating and and the uh, the fact that actually even, uh, you know, the scenes in school with Richard Tushingham, they didn't seem to be very different than than what you might get today. It seemed very fresh to me, actually, is, is how it came across. It didn't feel old and creaky. Some of the dialogue was a bit old-fashioned, but 
if you're British, you understand all that dialogue anyway, because it makes a lot of sense to us. But um, so it works on that level, which I thought was really interesting. But also the the queer nature of it, I thought was brilliantly yeah. done. Yeah, brilliantly no, it's done. a really uh, um, uh, it is. It's it's not necessarily ahead of its time. It's exactly at that time, as I yeah. said. You know, film like Victim as well. It's exactly at that time of going. Mm. We need to make these things. And I mean, I've I've got the novelization here, which I, oh, I yeah. bought in. Oh, uh, it was a novelization. Oh, yeah. Well, it originally was a novel. As far as I know, the novel was mm. first. Actually, this right. is uh, and it's Gillian Freeman, and uh, it's it's great. What well, I, I bought this in. Uh, it's called The Monkey's Paw. It's one of the last uh, gigs that I've, I did abroad before uh, lockdown in in Toronto. Monkey poor has amongst ah. other things uh, as well as having incredible cultish books to, to buy i've spent far too much money in there it has a thing called the bibliomat and you get a token and you put it into this machine it goes rumble 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 ping <laughs> and a book drops out from it you have no idea what the book's going to be it's Fantastic. just their way of getting rid of some of the stock which is not that appealing <laughs> but has the interest of going i wonder what it's going to be um and but this one I did buy, I think this was twelve fourteen dollars, nineteen sixty seven. And I love the description in the front. It goes, This is a novel that scored a sensational success in England for its authentic picture of young Britons in rebellion against the dull boredom of the welfare state. Dot dot dot. A film of this novel starring Rita Tushingham has been shown in the United States. Ooh. Something about that, a film of it, you know, not this yeah. is uh, the dance was ending as they burst into the hall. They stood silently staring, not moving, yet somehow on the point of moving, like praying animals, fifteen or twenty boys wearing motor motorcycle kit. Their hair was greased and combed into styles called college cut and Latin cut and campus cut and Perry Como. Their wow. expressions were contemptuous and excited. Someone shouted derisively, call that dancing. Come on, Dad, move your fat ass. <laughs> there we go. Watch out for these kids. The leather boys are sort of a generation too young, too wild to settle down. But it didn't feel like that when you're watching the film because actually the first thing that he does in the film is settle down, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he gets married. And that was about, for me, the only real um, slightly odd note in it was that literally the second he, get married, he gets married, he's unhappy. Like yeah. the absolute second. So they, they get married uh, against everybody's um, best advice and they go to Butlins in Bogner. I mean, that would make me think twice, quite honestly. <laughs> well, to be fair, my wife went to Butlins of Bognor yeah. last year, but that was to see Gary Newman. Ah, oh, uh, Because right. it was one of those. <laughs> but it's a fascinating film. And as as you say, as a snapshot in time, it's absolutely perfect. Now, am I given to understand that the original story ended differently? I don't know. Uh, yeah, as far as I know, yes. Uh, um, it's. I mean, I can read you the final paragraph if you mm. want. He pulled up for some traffic lights. Another motorcycle drew up alongside him. It was new and powerful. The young man astride it wore an immaculate leather jacket, a heavy leather belt, leather jeans and ankle-length boots. His crash helmet was silver with a black skull painted on the side. He revved his engine while waiting for the lights to change. Neither he nor Dick looked at each other but kept their eyes on the stoplight, each accepting the unspoken challenge. The light changed to amber and both machines roared away in unison, their exhaust clattering and reverberating, the smell of burnt fuel lingering in the air. Wow. So there we go. So on the fact, there we go. So on the back of his bike there, neither he nor Dick, they are, they're riding together. Yeah. So yeah. the inference there is that they stay together. Yeah. Whereas the film, presumably, to not alienate too big an audience, decided that maybe the, um, the uh, what's his name character, the uh, Colin Campbell character would walk away. 
Well, in the same way, Victim kind of goes, you know, mm. Dirt Bogards to to an extent. They play it just enough that he he you know for a moment he was suddenly led astray, desires desires he never meant to have, yes. and that hopefully he would go back into you right. know. Right. Okay. Because the, actually, in the Leather Boys, the only overt um, uh, homosexual reference in it is in the right at the end, isn't it? When they go into that pub that is clearly a gay gay pub. Mm. And that's the and it sort of the realization comes comes upon him that uh, this isn't everything as he had understood it, which seems odd to me because you know that did he not understand his relationship with Dudley Sutton throughout the film? Was he confused? I don't know. Mm. It wasn't. It's not quite clear, is it? Yeah. But, well, I mean, uh, I suppose at that point as well, where you still you know it's still illegal. I would imagine that the, in mm, terms of even of what they might have been allowed in terms of, of going, course. hang on a minute, screenplay-wise, yes. this is going to crash and burn. Yes. This is another case where it turns out really, you know, the the the, the powers were some way behind a lot of people's attitudes. You know, in the same way as when uh, the you know the 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 law was changed for um, mm. consent. You know, and it turned out you know, it looked like there were loads of loads of people are furious, loads of Christian groups, and then actually loads of Christian groups went, "We're not. It's no. just a small group of angry people who mm. you know, angry retrograde people." But it's uh, yeah, I I think it's still it, it's it's still like a lot of that. I think there's certain films. The other Rita Tushingham one that I I mean one that I don't think does really you know. Smashing Time with her and Lynn Redgrave oh, right, is yeah. very much like finding a you know a, a picture postcard that drops out of a book that you've bought that all the lurid colours. It's mm. fun, it's interesting, but it's not it's not really. Whereas I think A Taste of Honey and Leather Boys are still worth people's time, very no, much it worth absolutely people's time. Is. And that's a very good point about the illegality. It's very easy to forget, isn't it? The the the, the society in which these films were made. It's yeah. very easy to forget that looking back on it. And uh, no, I was I I really enjoyed it, and the director was interesting, Sidney J. Fury. Yeah, who did yeah. some really amazing. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I'm trying to think file. of he did which the one? Press file. The Ip Ip Press file. file. Yeah, which is easily the best Harry Palmer film. Yeah, I always feel that's a very sad thing, which is Harry the first Harry Palmer film, which is very much meant to feel like an anti Bond film. Sure. Yeah. And then from that point onwards, you know, Funeral in Berlin is a little bit. A little bit more Bondy, and then mm. Billion Dollar Brain is just utterly insane. Well, it's Ken, Ken, Russell. Ken Russell helming <laughs> that one, and it is. Uh... See, now there's someone that I I I love the idea of a Ken Russell movie, yeah. and I do think The Devils is still a brilliant piece. I, I think The Devils, Devils and Women in Love are still great movies. Very different movies. Both yes. very brilliant movies. And then the number of times that I go, maybe I should watch Listomania. Uh, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Is there the, a peak of creativity in a person? Do you think that they? Can... Some people go in like you know John Houston. I always think is interesting because you could never write him off. Sometimes you go, ah, that's not one of my favourites, uh, not so good. And then suddenly he'll do a film like Wise Blood, which is such mm. a totally different film than you would expect. You know, it's 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 a low budget art house, you know, take on a very interesting Southern Gothic novel. Mm. You know. Um, I think there are certainly Billy Wilder. I'm really excited ah. that uh, Jonathan Coe's new book is based around the making of Fedora, one of Billy Wilder's. Probably his, it might be his penultimate film. It might have been that and Buddy Buddy. I'm not entirely sure. But oh, yeah. I watched Fedora again. And when I first saw that as a 12 year old, I thought it was so weird. Mm. And now I return to it. And of course, I've seen so many weird films and it's not that weird at all. 
Mm. And then there are others, as you said, some of those films that we found. When I first saw 2001 A Space Odyssey, again, on a very small, portable, black and white television, that time that the BBC showed it and added stars into some of the scenes for no apparent reason. And John Brosnan's It's Only a Movie column in uh, Starburst magazine was furious about that. Yeah, when I first <laughs> saw that, I thought it was, you know, oh, it's a long and boring film. Of course, now I think it's just when I saw that for the second time, aged about 31 at the IMAX in London. Imagine the size of the screen. Imagine the difference from that small. I thought this is a work. Of course, this is a work of genius. This Mm. is just brilliant. I was uh, very lucky. I saw that in the cinema in 1969 as a seven year old boy. And. It is one of the most extraordinary experiences in the cinema that I remember. It's one of my most formative experiences. Now, I'm not going to say I was a smarter seven or eight year old than anyone else, but I think the key there is the small black and white television yeah, yeah. that you describe. I think, and there's a fascinating, there's a brilliant book that came out some years ago. Um, oh, I've got it up there. Look, uh, it's one of the first making of Kubrick's 2001 books that came out in the mid 80s. And it's. Uh, it's got a fantastic uh, essay about the meaning of 2001 from a 16-year-old girl. I don't know if you've ever read that, that Kubrick thought was God, the I don't, most was it? insightful Pull it out. Where's the book? Thing. Where's the book? Show me. It's, I want to know, because I've got, I've got one somewhere. It's an American book uh, by Jerome Agel. There you go. Oh, who did? Yeah. I've got that somewhere. Where the hell is it? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> You, you know it, what you know about my problem with books you know yeah, about I this do, issue yeah, yes. and i'm just oh but jerome angel who of course you as a science you know lover of science uh he did the uh amongst other things um the carl sagan book and uh and the marshall McLuhan book and all those wonderful yes. little kind of books that were snippets of different thinkers ideas that's with, what uh, and, is, and yeah. i can't somewhere in my bookshelf is the one that he did with uh oh man i really so, need that book now so there's this chapter here and it says affirmative dave i read you kubrick himself says uh, who's a 17 year old uh, junior at north plainfield high school <laughs> and kubrick himself says margaret stackhouse's speculations on the film are perhaps the most intelligent that i've read anywhere and i am of course including all the reviews and articles that have appeared on the film and the many hundreds of letters that i have received what a first rate intelligence i mean can you come do on. me a favor have you got a yeah. scanner <laughs> yes could you yes. scan that for me and send it to yeah, me? Yeah, I will do, of course, yeah. Because I would love to... Uh, that's one of those books that I keep... I don't know what I've done with it. I know I haven't got rid of it. Uh, it's, it's falling uh, to bits because I, I loved it and used it so Well, that's a great thing. It's falling to bits so you can easily yeah. scan it. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be able to break open those spines. But I, I, I saw it. I found it in... Um, uh, there was a big table full of them in Foyle's bookshop in about 1984. And I couldn't believe my eyes that there was an actual book about 2001 that's at the so time. so cool. But um, yeah, so and there's also a lot of research or a lot of lot of writing about how 2001 somehow uh, got through to kids more than it did adults at the time, because as a kid, as an eight year old, I'm sitting there. I, I'm not worried about narrative. I'm not worried about the beginning, the middle, the end. I'm not trying to make sense of it. I'm just letting it come at me and experiencing yeah. it, which is presumably part of what Kubrick wanted anyway. Because he makes no concessions to the audience, does he? A normal audience in that film, or a regular no. audience. He doesn't try to explain what's going on. Actually, what Kubrick uh, needed from us was not, not it was to accept what we were showing, what he was showing us, which children in the cinema were able to do 
and adults expecting a good night's entertainment with some monsters and some spaceships and maybe some death rays uh, didn't get. And, uh, you know, because really for a film that size to be the intellectual exercise that it was, how did he pull that off? I mean, yeah. it's extraordinary, really. I mean, probably the last time anybody... when Have, have we had intellect... I mean, cause as much as, again, everyone loves Star Wars and all that kind of stuff, it was a... It's a different kind of science fiction, isn't it? And it's 2001... Well, Interstellar, I suppose. Interstellar, probably, still, yeah. Interstellar does have a clear narrative in it. It That's does. the and difference, which I, is, I think you're right. I mean, it's interesting because the Arthur C. Clarke short story is very specific. You know, mm. it, it's... A, if you've, if it is you've, what it, it is. Yeah, it, it is the this sentinel, beautiful yeah. thing, which is mm. um, if human beings... if what, Aliens basically go around and on the various satellites around uh, planets uh, place a, a, a black plinth where they, they know there's uh, life on another. And if they find that that creature that lives on the planet below wants to reach out and explore and has curiosity the point of touching that black monolith sends out a signal which says okay we're going to pop down to earth they seem to be interesting people now that's that's a very simple very beautiful narrative but that's not the narrative of 2001 and that black pillar and those moments of evolution and i and i don't care i i mean i, I started watching that film which i must the the room not room 23 um oh, the, about the, the, the one about the shining yeah mm. I haven't seen that. No, I, I'm not sure <laughs> I great. want that much analysis on The Shining. You will Is love that... it because it's not going to yeah. change the film for you because you're oh, right. not going to believe any of those allegories. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's the thing, which is I find it again, the pattern seeking nature of human beings where it says I found the story. I'm, I'm not bothered. At, yeah, and but... I miss points so often no, and where someone will then say you didn't realise they were dead or whatever. I'll go, oh, no, I mm. didn't. But it doesn't mm. mean I didn't enjoy the film. I had a lovely time. No, but Kubrick's film is full of patterns, I suppose. It's almost like he's prodding these people, isn't he? You know, yeah. Shining is full of patterns. I mean, actually, so is 2001, but but they're very overt in The Shining, the carpet, the, you know, there are so many patterns in it. Uh, and the way he shoots... In fact, I, I'll tell a quite boring story, but I showed The Shining when it came out in 1980, and we were on film, yeah? So we used to have to rewind the film by hand then, each reel, because we didn't have long players like a lot of cinemas did. So I did changeovers, 20 minutes. And I was struck by this incredible pattern that was passing through my fingers. Now, very few people are ever going to see that. You know, like, ooh, you know, like, like movement it was very specific as the film was running through my fingers. So Kubrick's had this film is so is authored to the point that even if you run it through your fingers, it's a work of art. It's extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And um, so 2001. Uh, yes, I mean it's as much about the terror of technology, isn't it, as it is about evolution. That film, I think, probably. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Maybe yeah, it doesn't matter. I suppose. Yeah. yeah. No. Okay. Fair enough. But no, it uh, probably is. Yeah. 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 Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. But what, what I mean, a that's, I, that's what I love is I love that thing. There's that old line about Waiting for Godot where someone said it's basically a Rorschach test. It doesn't <laughs> tell you what to, to – it doesn't say no. this is the plot. You will find your story. And I think like so many things – I mean, this is basically part of what the, the book I'm writing about at the moment is, which is I think finding meaning is a joy. It's when you then decide this is the ultimate meaning and you must convert everyone else to that meaning is when you go, and now you have taken something beautiful and personal and you have smashed it and you have crushed it and you've turned it into... And, and that 
is you know something that we fight with all the time as, as as human beings that bit of just going you know what there's a lot of mystery here and i i've found a way of dealing with 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 death or the different problems of existence mm. and every now and again i might say to someone well i found this quite useful but i'm not going to say read this book come and live with me in guatemala <laughs> you know yeah it's leaving a space for you to bring yourself to something that's quite important yeah and the better films do that and the more mainstream Hollywood picture that has to counterpoint everything with a piece of music to tell you how to feel and to tell you what to think is, is far, far less rewarding. What I was going to say actually about 2000, going back to 2001 for a moment, if you want the bits and pieces filled in, there's another interesting book that Arthur C. Clarke released some years later called The Lost Worlds of 2001. Oh, now that I have got and I know where it is, yeah. so that's fine. <laughs> you can keep talking about that book, not a problem, not an issue. And what that does is it kind of fills in gaps. If you want the gaps filled in, read Lost Worlds of 2001, you know, about the building of the discovery and all this kind of stuff, which, you know, does it doesn't really need it, but it's kind of, as a completist, I suppose it's quite interesting. Well, that's what I like about, again, the like, reason that I like science and reading about science is it changes the night sky. It changes what you can see. It changes how you, what, you, what you can see in something, and that will change again. You know, that, that, that can keep changing. But Interstellar, that was the other thing I was going to say, Interstellar, um, what upset me about Interstellar, as much as it's a, a very entertaining film, was that in the end the narrative had to come down to you. It's all about you, isn't it? And that's what I found difficult because actually one of the because it's quite a Kubrickian film, isn't it? Clearly, yeah. Kubrick is a massive influence on Nolan. And one of the things, particularly in 2001, I, I mean, Kubrick said it several times in interviews, um, that the terrifying thing about the universe isn't that it's enormous or endless or that it has all these things that you don't know about in it. It's its utter indifference to you. That's yeah. what makes it terrifying. And that's what Interstellar couldn't quite do. It couldn't make the universe indifferent to that character. When it was, it, it, in certain portions of the film indifferent to him, it was actually really quite affecting and quite chilling. You know, when they, they come back and it's 25 years have gone by and you suddenly realise, you know, Newton, uh, not Newton, um, Einstein's, you know, relativity and all the rest of it has had an effect on this mission. And uh, uh, that's chilling because there was nothing they could do to control that at all. Yeah. Whereas when it becomes, oh, I'm going to go and see my mum, and uh, or, or, yeah, number daughter, isn't it? My old daughter, yeah. and it's oh, no, it's not about you, surely. I don't. Know. I, I, I think yeah. I, would, I mean, I think I might have been saved that because I watched it on a flight with with Brian Cox. Actually, we were going to oh, right. uh, okay. from, from from Chicago wow. to LA. I'd like, and, I'd like to um, hear that DVD. And I commentary. think it was <laughs> just when they put the fasten seatbelt signs on uh, as that end bit came. So ah, I enjoyed the whole journey right. and possibly had the actual ending. That's what I loved about uh, the film Vox Lux. Have you seen Vox Lux? I've I banged have. on about it a lot. I liked it. I thought it miss it was missing a third act. That was the only thing. See, I'm not sure it was, but I no. have to admit, I didn't enjoy it the second time as much as the first, but I still right. loved it. And I loved it for the fact that uh, well, there's so many interest. Again, I loved it for so many interesting things. I loved it for the fact that you are left with your meaning of what she thinks she has gone through. This again, highly recommend to anyone listening. Natalie Portman stars in it, and uh, it's got a Scott Walker soundtrack and Sia and all manner of things. Yeah, and it's just. But I, I liked it for the fact that. It, 
it's shied away from going here's the answer and it gives you some niceness it gives you a moment of smiling it gives you a sense that there is some connection that's happened to the characters at a certain point but it doesn't i mean there's a there's a beautiful film i don't you'd love it it's called cinemania it was a documentary which Mm. seems to have vanished now i saw Mm. it in new york and it was all about new york film fans people who go and see every single film when it's released (laughs) and so they find themselves in the same cinema very often and all of them, and they collect some of them are huge collectors of everything so they'll have a, you know they they are hoarders who have got every plastic cup that was a, a you know McDonald's made for Shrek or whatever it might be wow yeah and you know with all of them you can see there is either some damage or some level of of, of condition that has led to it you know so it's an interesting story it doesn't mm. overplay that but you realize that the reason to answer that but there's one guy in it who is the smartest one you know that you know the guy who really is able to pull back and go. I know this is kind of weird, mm. but I mm. do it, and mm. I am this. Mm. And he said this thing, which really stayed with me. He said the problem with real life. He says films. What films give you is they give you a moment at the end. They give you completion. They give you punching in the air and simple minds at the end of Breakfast Club or what it might be. They give you hat. But in real life, you punch the air. You land back on the pavement. Then you go down to the subway, and then the oh man, there's problems on the subway, and you can't get back home. And then you're late back home, and the person who was waiting for you is really, really furious with you, and someone throws a cup, and that's the problem. Life continues, yeah. and and I think that that's what I like about those films, which say you can have your ending, and it also I think sometimes gives you you can also take this further if you want, because it's not freeze frame end. But there are times when we want that, aren't there? Surely. Oh you yeah, know, no, I, I can. I totally and, also and, understand why yeah. people want that. I have. I'm. I'm mm. not arguing against those people who who, no. who love those things or people who do just want a narrative. That's. I want an end. I want mm. to know they love each other. That's what I want at the end. Yeah. That's why I, I. I want to know that Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan are about to meet. I must know that. And no point oh. do I want it left to my imagination that she gave up on him and is in the lift down and they never no. meet or whatever it might be. <laughs> I understand that as well yeah. because when you've got a world that is so chaotic, but I. I think I've given up on one. I go, the world is so chaotic. So what I would like is to be given things which do not say this is the meaning, this is the truth or anything like that. Yeah, I think the meaning can, can be ambiguous. But there are, you know, there, one of the putting my cinema owner's hat on now. Um, you know, it's a lovely hat, by the way. I've not a, seen it, do you know before. what? I really tell you nice, what, yeah. this is my hair. It's uh, <laughs> It's gone, well, feral. Um, uh, is that the thing about running a cinema is that people want to know they're going to enjoy the film and this yeah. is a real dichotomy so we're film fans so we go no i want something challenging and interesting and vox lux is all of those things and it's got a great score by scott walker and all this kind of stuff but actually people wouldn't go and see that they're, gonna, they're not going to say well i tell you what that looks really interesting so i'm going to put i'm going to spend 20 quid on a babysitter and 40 quid on a pizza and 30 quid on a cinema ticket it's quite difficult to find that you know people don't want to risk it they they don't want to risk it which is why we yeah it up, makes me sad you know. it's like john sales limbo which mm. is a great movie which i haven't watched for a long time but i remember seeing that at the edinburgh film festival and that because to get the clues in the title limbo right it's it's an interesting <laughs> film where the first half of the film it then has a bit like something wild brilliant jonathan oh, Demi film, yeah, something wild, film. Which, which is two films it's it's a kooky uh screwball comedy involving a yuppie and then it is an extremely perilous film with an incredible yes. performance from ray liotta amongst others yes in in a different way limbo is two separate films it's, it's a kind of you know middle-aged people's 
romance in a weird town, which then goes into a different sense of jeopardy. But that's but exactly the, the art that's been lost, hasn't it? Because those, you know, you mentioned Billy Wilder. He was able to do that. He was able to make a film that on one level was a very entertaining either a comedy, although actually his darker films uh, are, are, I think, um, I mean, some like it hot is irreplaceable as one of the funniest films ever made. But, you know, Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard, these are dark, dark films, but they yeah. operate on more than one level. And they were very clever at getting that through the studio system. Houston was the same. You know, Maltese well, Falcon I'll tell you also, some, William yeah. Peter Blatty. This is William yeah. Peter Blatty, isn't it? Uh, the author, yeah, of Exorcist. Yeah, his yeah. two movies, uh, Exorcist, where I think I think there's more than two, but they're the main, Exorcist 3 and the Ninth mm. Configuration. Oh, that's bizarre. Because <laughs> the great thing about William Peter Blatty is he was a gag writer. He was a gag man. He was a comedy writer, and he wrote The Exorcist. Mm. And if you watch that film, and if, especially if you watch Exorcist 3, Exorcist 3 is one of the most disconcerting horror films. It Terrifying. really is in a world that is... But it's also packed with brilliant lines. And they're not lines that sound like a comedy writer. They sound like exactly how George C. Scott's character would talk and how the priest mm. would talk. And mm. Ninth Configuration does the same thing. Ninth Configuration is set in uh, basically an asylum for, for military personnel. At the heart of it, it has a tragedy. And yet around that tragedy, and that really fits in. It, again, it's that reminder that real life the moment you get into a genre film, which is only that genre, you forget that you know everyone who's been to funeral, everyone who's lost someone, everyone will remember the the all the jokes that go on as well during yes. the very worst points in your life. Sometimes, not always, but quite often that and films that bit where you go, oh, that's not going to read well. So everyone, ha and then I think that's why in real life, when people start to feel guilty at their behaviour because they go, oh my god. I did that, and that's not how you behave at a funeral because I saw how Tom Hanks behaved at that funeral, and that was very different. That's a brilliant point. And I, there was, uh, they were, I think, Picture House, the other Picture House. Uh, they've been doing some uh, sort of watch alongs. They've been doing uh, Amour, you know. Um, uh, what's his name? The Austrian French filmmaker who is very lauded, and he's gone completely out of my head. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Hanukkah. 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 Michael Hanukkah's Hanukkah, yeah. Amour, which is is an extraordinary film. I, I don't know if you've seen it, but no, it's 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 two old people living in a flat in Paris, and she starts to deteriorate. So he's got to look after her. They've been married for sixty years or something. You know, it's it's, a, it's actually it seemed to me to, uh, meant to be an actual quite ordinary story about what it's like to get old and what it's like to look after someone who's dying and then they die. But these people have been together for so long, they can't be apart. But at no point do they laugh. This is what yeah, I can't yeah. understand. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe I would undermine the seriousness of the art. But when he's helping her out, there's a really heartbreaking scene where he's helping her out of the bath. I'd have had a fart at that point and then they fall about laughing because yeah. that's what when you spend your life with someone for a long time hopefully you laugh a lot don't you there you yeah. see the funny side of things and you're right film isn't always very good at pointing that out it has to stick in this sort of rigid right this is a very serious art film but people laugh 
That's why I love, I love Wild Strawberries. I think Wild Strawberries has loads of things going on in it. I think that's one of my favourite Ingmar Bergman's for the fact that it is. There's all that anxiety and sadness and loss, and there's also lots of laughing. And there's there's yeah there's uh yeah Hanukkah is I've I've got that you know the box set and all that stuff. But it really does t- have to take a very specific mood because I think you're right that bit which is to me it also makes life too hopeless. It makes it utterly hopeless to to do that thing and it, and it's a a message which i i just think is yeah there are terrible terrible things that happen and we uh, make a joke i never know? quite know what's who was the one i was thinking of the other day there was someone that i watched again i just thought this is just too singularly miserable Po-faced. and then there's other <laughs> directors that i mean someone who i find fascinating is todd salons ah uh, i nearly brought him you know, up earlier yes i just watched again the dark horse his uh mm. movie christopher walken amongst others Yes, that's a fascinating film, isn't it? Yeah. First yeah. time I watched it, I thought the lead character, Dark Horse character, I thought he was just such an asshole. And then I watched it this time, and it just shows the difference in my mood. I just thought, this guy's just this loser who cannot find... And, and it's so weird, because I thought it's almost like he's being played by a different actor. Again, when we talk about different ages or whatever, or different points we're going through, watching it this time, I had so much more empathy for him. I loved... Christopher Walken I, I thought oh, I feel sorry a bit for the dad and then I watched it this time and I thought no they've really made some terrible mistakes here with their son somehow along the line they've mm. allowed this to happen as well this is not just because he's a brat or anything like that but well, I, I did... watched uh, what's it um what's it called um I always I'd never know how to pronounce it Sinodoki New York or Sinodoki oh, New York Sin- whatever it's Sindochi, called Sindochi New York isn't it or something Sin- yeah that's that, hard going yeah actually someone after I watched that went bloody hell <laughs> I thought there was many I thought there's going to be some happiness in this. Ooh. It's an utterly bleak film. Yes, it is. And it's about um, three hours long. But it was marketed, and someone said, look at what the sticker was on the DVD. The laugh-out comedy of the year <laughs> from Metro or something. And you go, where I... did you find that? I mean, I thought it was a very interesting film, but that was an occasion where having very little knowledge of the film, I wasn't in the mood. For, well, I was fine with that ride. But I didn't want that ride. I, I, I had hoped for some elements of... I, I'd hoped for just a few more jokes. Something with... A, I thought it was going to be much lighter than it's you t- live. It's mm. awful. It gets worse. Your decisions are terrible. You die. Yeah, it's a bit film as therapy, isn't it? For What's his face? Kaufman, I think. Yeah. That one. So we should finish off that week uh, just quickly because we've been uh, natural. We've not really while. talked about the double bills and, at all. I, I should, this, I should, this now is I the, the running go. time of this yeah. is quite close to the first Captain America movie, so we really should. But we haven't got to the first, the last uh, so Avengers movie, so we're all right. Murder at the wise. Gallop uh, and Guns of Wyoming. There you go. Uh, Murder at the Gallop is you know Margaret Rutherford being Margaret Rutherford, isn't it? And who yeah. who doesn't who doesn't like that? Yeah, uh, they're, they're, none of those films are. When you go back to them, they're, they're never quite well made enough. But no. I will spend any Sunday there on watching them because yeah. uh, Margaret Rutherford, Stringer Davis, I'm pretty certain Robert Stringer Moore is in Murder Davis. at the Gallop as well. Um, they yes, are always beautifully performed. They have that wonderful, uh, the, the the theme tune yeah, is Ron fantastic. Goodwin. I think by Ron, Ron Goodwin. Oh, Ron, was it yeah. Ron Goodwin? Yeah. Ron Goodwin, yeah. Uh, fantastic. And, and it's just such <laughs> a, a, a chirpy, wonderful, mm. uh, and, and Margaret Rutherford was an interesting character as well. There's a, there's a very interesting book by her adopted daughter called A Blithe Spirit, which I would highly recommend oh, anyone read because okay. that that story alone is is a very odd and yes. strange story but i love the fact that you know and my husband will be in it as well Stringer, yeah and come he was in he you're was playing in my of, husband in this yeah he was oh, in all good. of them i think all of them yeah. Miss marple ones i mean extraordinary 
Uh, that that did, so actually, so the Leather Boys did really well. Uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 127 admissions on Monday, 116 on Tuesday, and 104 on Wednesday. Took 46 pounds, 10 shillings, and sixpence. Uh, oh, and due to British line Columbia, he's written in here, <laughs> which you might be able to see. Oh yeah. Blah, due to British line Columbia, as, which is, so that's the film hire for the film. 11 pounds, 12 shillings, and eightpence. <laughs> So that's about 25%. Murder at the Gallop, Guns of Wyoming. That must be, uh, my guess is that's a Western. I've just looked this up <laughs> and I'm in- intrigued because it must have had a very yes. young Robert Loggia in it. Ah, oh, uh, okay. Who, of course, well, amongst other things, uh, appeared in The Lost Highway, which Lost Highway, which you mentioned Robert earlier. Loggia, so yeah, yeah, he was great. And it, and it starred Robert Taylor. Uh, and it was known as Cattle King. Uh, that was that was the original title for it. Cattle King, directed by Tay Garnett. Uh, wow. I've never seen it. I'm, I'm nope. certain this one will have been on uh, um, Talking Pictures. Talking Pictures up. at some I've point. I've never liked um, westerns. Uh, I, don't good, I don't mind um, an Ota, as they call, they're called in variety. <laughs> I um, quite like what, an Ota. What I find interesting is that the director uh, directed um, Stan Laurel in various things. Wow. I'll have a look at that later. So uh, have, have a little of that. He worked for Max Sennett. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, this... Um, I mean, I'm always fascinated that those directors that just went on forever. And, I mean, quite a few uh, of the Elvis... Or at least two, I think, of the Elvis Presley terrible movies mm. are directed by people who won an Oscar for Best Director, but in 1929. Ah, uh, yes. So Roustabout. <laughs> I can't remember what the guy who directed Roustabout won, but, but Roustabout, which has Barbara Stanwyck in it, and should be a brilliant... Elvis Presley movie because he's he's working in a fairground doing the wall of death on his motorbike. It's a biker movie. He's got good leathers and he also knows martial arts. Right. Don't worry, it does not fulfil any of those promises oh, at all. It, <laughs> oh, he always did well here. Elvis, Elvis and Tarzan. You put Elvis and Tarzan uh, together, you couldn't go go wrong. Tarzan's Great Adventure and Speedway or something like that. Yeah, it couldn't go wrong. Uh, and so, yeah, that was busy. Oh, so that's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Murder at the Gallop, Guns of Wyoming, 73, 47. And on Saturday, 376 people came to see Murder at the Gallop. They made a good decision. Yeah, and it took 59 pounds and seven pence over the three days. Due to MGM, so the film hire to MGM was 14 pounds, 16 shillings and nine pence. <laughs> now, the following week, we, we could go on all day, but the following week, The Servant and Last Holiday. That's an interesting, I don't know, what's Last Holiday? We need to know what that is and then we'll knock it on there what's last yeah the servant is a really i mean i I go back to that yeah there's i've I've got that joseph losey uh box set that came out which includes things like um what's it called it's not called the uh it's called the victim with stanley baker a kind of uh prison melodrama and of course joseph losey also made that fascinating um uh these are the damned hammer movie last Ah, holiday Uh, oh, it's time. Queen Latifah and LL no. Cool J. Yeah, Hang no, on, I think that's that. the wrong one. Uh, I um, think it is. Uh, let's see. I wonder ooh. when that's from. Uh, it's black and white. I think I found it. Ooh. Last Holiday. Here we go. I've got a. I can only YouTube. find one from 1950 with Alec Guinness. No. Which Last one have you holiday. found? Then? Oh, yeah, 1950. Alec Guinness. It must have been that then. That is exactly what it was. Because what you could do in those days, you could make a double feature. And then you'd only pay a fiver for the second feature. That's how it worked. Oh, Flat rate right. fiver. So you would to... have something that was that different in age. That's interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you could still play it. It hadn't been on TV. It wasn't, you know, films. You could play films forever. When I grew up, it was endless Italian job, Monte Carlo bust, 
you know uh, these films that just kept coming round and round again because you could and because there was no such thing as a holdover you didn't say you know these days if it takes a fortune over the weekend you say right that's going on for another week that's going on for another week and you keep it going till it dies that never happened then it played mm. what it was programmed for and if it took a lot of money you bought it back a few weeks later that was the only way you could do it you know it was quite a different quite a different thing um I mean, I'm going to start course. now programming home yes. using your dad's because <laughs> I just love looking through that spreadsheet and yeah. it is so and I know that quite a few of them will be in some of the old film reviews that I've got so I kind of mm. uh, that's a great place by the way that you'll enjoy if you ever go down to Deal I hope it survives what's going on now there is a museum of Kent's Museum of Moving Image and it is run ah, by the guy okay. who uh, actually got Getty to give all the money to uh, build the um, archive at Berkhamsted. Uh, so yes. he used to work in the industry and doing things like that. And uh, and then his wife, uh, I forget now, but her his wife was a lecturer on film in, in the US and is the daughter of a, a well-known cinematographer. And it's just, they've basically just taken a house in deal and they've there's posters, there's a doll you could get a uh, a dead of night doll you remember it's charlie is it charlie what's what? the name of the doll in? no yeah, from the get... um uh, cavalcanti thing yeah, yeah dead of night wow yeah what, you mean, could you was... used to be able to get apparently there was a spin-off doll that was terrifying that doll it was still terrifying. is a great that's yeah. one of the last double bills that i because i did a double bill with you of course yeah. which was uh um, mask of the red death and x yeah. the man with x-ray eyes mm-hmm. um and previous to that, I did a double bill, which was uh, Dead of Night followed by Deathline, uh, the Gary Sherman film. Deathline. And uh, that was a fascinating thing to, to put together because Dead of Night, 1946, whatever it was, 45, 46, um, an audience who predominantly come just because they went, oh, this will be fun, it's a horror double bill. They, they weren't mm. necessarily really big horror fans. Reese Shearsmith was, was with me as well, so someone oh, had cool. come for that reason. And it was so interesting. They watched the first two and they're kind of like, yeah, this is fun, this is good. And oddly enough, the 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 story that then really hooked them was Basil Radford and Norton Wayne being two golf buddies who fall out over someone they love, and one of them commits suicide on the golf course. Mm. And it's very funny. And Basil Radford and Norton Wayne, Charters and Caldecott in Lady Vanishes. Yes, uh, they it translated totally to oh, wow. uh, an audience in what would have been two thousand seventeen. And then Deathline is still a remarkable film I, I spent some time with gary sherman in november and, and it was like man that's a good film it's, it's got one terrible lead in it has a terrible uh, i think it was uh i forget which lad it was one of the one of the, the lad family that became a film producer and i think everyone agreed including him yeah i should not have been the leading I man <laughs> it was donald pleasance wasn't it yeah yeah, it's a brilliant performance by Donald Pleasance. In fact, the de- the book about Deathline, which the monograph horror series I was telling you about brought out, uh, uh, it's very interesting that the author, the second half is all about Deathline. The first half is the imagined diary of Donald Pleasance's character during the investigation of the murder, and it's cool. brilliantly done. Absolutely oh, brilliant. Oh, wow. The thing I also remember about that was I um, did never got to see the saucy film that went with it when it came out. Oh, what was, was it? It was called Night Hair Child. Oh, God, really with Mark Lester. Weird. Mark Lester, yeah, really weird. Uh, you know, the idea of this um, older woman. Is it Britt Eklund as well? I think it's, uh, hang on, yeah, Britt Eklund, yeah. Mark Lester, Britt Eklund, together at last. Harry Andrews. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was that was the double feature. And I, I saw Deathline some years later, but the quad used to fascinate me as a kid. 
Yeah, and also because just... quite often the image used, like down at the Abattoir Festival, they had some of the posters. For it. it was called Raw Meat in the US. Ah. And it looks nothing like the film. It seems to have just a tribe of kind of Amazonian women. None mm. of the film is about a tribe of Amazonian women. That's very much it. It's not even a minor detail. They've enlarged <laughs> for the purpose of quad. That is just, it's not in it. That's funny. Well, that was fun. I tell you, I really enjoyed that a lot. And it was a bit of a headache editing it down to a manageable size. Um, maybe I'll release the director's cut at some point, because it's about another hour and 20 minutes of that. Um, so thank you, Robin. Um, I really appreciate your time and I'm sure all the listeners do too I should mention actually that um, Robin has a book I'm a joke and so are you which is very, very also worth your time very entertaining and I know he's working really hard on the new one at the moment which is stressing him the hell out now uh I just wanted to give you a bit of background on this hideous music. It's not that I'm a big fan of Burt Kempfer, it's just this is what I call a non-sync classic. Where this is the music that was playing in the cinema before the film started when I was a kid. We had Burt Kempfer records, we had James Last records. And I can close my eyes and see the cinema as it was when it was one screen but sadly I have no pictures so if there's anyone out there that knows where or if they've got a picture of the inside of the cinema when it was a single unit I would love you forever anyway thanks for listening we'll see you next time and do take care